So good morning, if you don't know me, my name is Dale and I'm part of the team that leads uh, New Life Community Church. Now in case you haven't noticed, uh, December is upon us. Did you know that? And that means we are currently in between preaching series um, and that means I get to choose the topic for this morning's preach. And that means I'm going to talk about the bad thing and the good news. The bad thing and the good news. Oh yeah, yeah, that's really, that's a help, sure. You, you might not like it, John, but um, <laughs> no intentionality meant there. <laughs> so, but before we get started this morning, I want to take a moment I want to be real with you guys. I want to be honest. Um, I want to confess something to you as a church. And if you're a visitor, don't think too bad of me, please. You see, I occasionally actually enjoy romantic comedies. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Feels like a great weight has been lifted off my shoulders, actually. I know that that's hard for you to believe about me because you probably think that I've got a set of kind of prerequisites, things that I need to see in a film in order to watch it. And you'd be right. And here's some of them, just so you get a feel for it. It's got to have a car chase, gunfight, fist fight, sword fight, or a dog fight with aeroplanes. Okay? It's got to have aliens, robots, or superheroes in it, preferably. Um, it's got to be set in a dystopian or post-apocalyptic future. That's a hard one to say. Or it's got to involve time travel, space travel, or reality travel. Do you see where I'm going? This is the sort of films I normally watch. Also, is it Star Wars or does it have the rock in it? If either of those things are true, I'm in. Okay. Unfortunately, as far as rom-coms go, <clears throat> the majority of them do not contain any of the above. Um, but they've got loads of feelings. So that's good. I like that. Nevertheless, in all honesty, there is something so great about that boy meets girl rom-com formula where they fall in love or they begin to fall in love. There's a lot of back and forth. And then eventually they finally realise that they do, in fact, 100% love each other. And it's so good. It's so good. That is until the bad thing. Okay. If you watch romantic comedies, you know what I mean. There's a bad thing. There's, there's a bit <clears throat> where one or the other of them does something that is so out of order, so utterly, devastatingly stupid that the relationship is completely broken and it seems irreparable. Do you know what I mean in a romantic comedy? It's the bad bit. And I'm there shouting at the TV. I'm like, no, 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 no. Why are you doing the bad thing? It was so happy and now it's broken. Do you know there's a film that I have not seen the end of to this day because there was a bad thing and I just walked out the lounge. I just said to him, shut, I'm out, I'm done. I could not get past the fact of what these people had done. Didn't watch the end of it, still haven't. The reason I didn't watch it is because I thought they were never, ever, ever getting back together to quote the great theologian Taylor Swift. Many of you have probably heard of her. And at first glance, some of the Bible seems a bit like that, particularly what we're going to look at this morning, which is Genesis chapter 3. This is all about the bad thing, so it seems. 
You see, in chapters 1 and 2, God and mankind are in this perfect relationship. They do, in fact, 100% love each other. And there's no secrets between them. There's no shame, no guilt. And Adam and Eve enjoy hanging out together in the paradise of Eden with God. And you can imagine them leaning back, sipping coconut mocktails and chuckling together about why God made giraffes look so incredibly weird or, or why lion's teeth are so super, super sharp if they're just going to eat carrots and turnips all day. But anyway, the fact is God gave them freedom. God was like, hey guys, you go, go and have lots of fun. Make lots of babies and spread my image out across the earth. That was their job. That was their mandate. And he said, you're in charge of all the creatures and all creation. You can eat any of the fruit of the trees in the garden, okay? Any of the fruit. Just Actually, just don't eat the fruit of this tree. Because this tree is the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. Just don't eat that fruit. Any of the fruit, but just not this fruit, okay? Because if you eat that one, you die. That's what God said. It's easy to remember that rule because all the other trees have got like really simple names like apple tree and pear tree and orange tree. This one's called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's really easy to grasp. So in summary, God said, all of the other trees, fine, this tree, don't eat that. But you guys are in charge. You look after the place for a bit. And then God just nips off probably to the Christian bookshop or somewhere. I don't know. But the thing is, he hasn't been gone five minutes. And boom, the bad thing happens. Okay, let's read Genesis 3, 1 to 6 together. Now, the serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. And one day he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat the fruit of any of the trees in the garden? Of course, we may eat any of the fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we're not allowed to eat. God said, you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you'll die. You won't die. The serpent replied to the woman, God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it and you'll be like God, knowing both good and evil. Well, the woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious And she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. And then she gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate it too. It literally couldn't be worse. Adam and Eve have broken the only rule that God has ever given them. A rule that was there for their own protection. If you're a parent, you know how that feels. In this one moment, the very reality of human existence has been changed forever by a bad thing. Innocence has been lost. Friends have become enemies. Family have become strangers. And now life ends in death. The sinless have become sinful because of the bad thing. Every hurtful, spiteful, evil, deceitful, damaging and corrosive thing that human beings have ever done or will ever do or think is birthed right here in this moment in Genesis chapter 3. In this first sin. A sin that is all at once rebellion against God, folly, treason, spiritual adultery, missing the mark, idolatry, pride, selfishness and self-worship. Adam and Eve made a willful, knowing choice to ignore the words of the God who spoke the whole of creation into being. And instead they elevate the words of a snake, a created being, 
to the point of highest authority in their lives. And just like when I'm watching a rom-com, when I read that, I find myself crying out, why? Why? Why are you doing the bad thing? But you know, there are moments to this day when I cry that out over myself because I sin. And I do things that are so outrageously stupid that I look at myself and I say, why? Why did you do that? You know it's going to damage your relationship with others. You know that it's going to hurt your relationship with God. Why did you do that? Brothers and sisters, we need to have our eyes wide open. Adam and Eve weren't surprised to see a snake in the garden. Believe it or not, they weren't surprised to hear it talking. It didn't announce its evil intentions. It didn't come openly armed for rebellion against God. Instead, it was sly. It was cunning. It was deceptive, devious, and seductive. Do you see how easily it manipulates the truth of God's word? It causes them to doubt the truthfulness of God's word. Did God actually say you can't eat any of the fruit from the trees in the garden? Well, no, God didn't say that, but it makes them think. And on that basis, the serpent then moves to undermine and contradict God's word or the truthfulness of it. Because he says, I've got special knowledge that God hasn't given you and you can get that too. He says, you won't die. Well, God said you clearly will. He says, God just doesn't want you to eat it because he knows if you do, you'll be like him, knowing good and evil. The thing is, it changes how they look at that forbidden fruit, right? Now it looks delicious, attractive, desirable. The reality is the fruit hasn't changed. It looks just the same as it did before, but the man and the woman, they have changed. Now they covet the fruit, they they lust after it. And suddenly their inbuilt desire to reflect God is perverted into an ungodly desire for the knowledge and power that is his alone. They wanted to be like God in a way that he didn't intend. And the irony is they were already more like God than anything else in all creation because they were made in his image. Do you know this? Satan operates exactly the same way today to me and you. He doesn't telegraph his moves or broadcast his intent. He takes the truth of God's word and he questions it. Did God really say marriage is between one man and one woman? He twists and distorts, undermines and contradicts God's word. There's no such thing as sin. You don't have to worry about that. It's just Christian people trying to restrict your freedoms. The problem is if we're not careful... These lies change how we look at sinful things and they can start to look delicious, attractive. Of course, the reality is sin hasn't changed. It just looks the same as it did before, but but as men and women, we have changed. Now we covet sinful things. We lust after them. Now our inbuilt desire to reflect God is perverted into this ungodly desire to exercise the power and authority over our lives that's reserved for God alone. We want to be like him in the way that he hasn't intended. So we've got to be watchful. We've got to be vigilant over both our own lives and over the lives of those we're responsible for. Ask yourself some questions. What are you watching? What are you reading? What are you listening to? Who are the influencers in your life? 
Are they confirming and teaching and living out God's word? Or are they hell-bent on questioning, undermining and contradicting it? Because you know where that comes from, right? Let's look back at Genesis 3, verse 7. At that moment, when they ate that fruit, their eyes were opened. And they suddenly felt shame and their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. This is the first evidence of the consequence of sin. And it's seen in the relationship between the man and the woman. Where they were once naked and unashamed, and there was literally and figuratively nothing between them. Now, they're ashamed of their nakedness. And they try to cover themselves with fig leaves. As an outward sign of the barrier that now separated the man and the woman. Where they were once literally and figuratively one, now they were two broken halves of God's intended whole. Verse 8. When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking in the garden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. They heard the sound of God walking in the garden. Now, this wasn't unusual. And normally, probably, their hearts would beat just a little bit faster because they knew they were going to spend time with God. But this time was different, right? This time their hearts began to pound out of their chest because their fight-or-flight instinct has kicked in. Because their sin has led to shame, which has led to fear. And now they fear God. They fear his presence. So they hid. In hindsight, it's a relatively pointless thing to do when there's an all-knowing God wandering around the garden. In a way, it reminds me of those games that I used to play with my kids where, you know, hide-and-seek, where they used to go and hide behind the curtains or whatever. And I'd count to 10 and they'd run off and I'd, I'd wander in and I'd see their little legs and feet sticking out from underneath the curtains. And you have to prowl around the room and say, I wonder where Jasmine is. Is she under the bed? Is she behind the sofa? I know where she is. She's behind the curtain, but I haven't said it yet. It doesn't matter that I can see their legs and their feet because as far as they're concerned, they can't see me and therefore I can't see them. Do you know the crazy thing is though, humanity's been playing that sort of hide and seek game with God ever since. We close our eyes and then we say, if I don't acknowledge God and if I don't believe he exists, then he doesn't exist. And he can't see me. But that didn't change the reality of the games with my kids. It didn't change the reality for Adam and Eve. And it doesn't change our reality either. And eventually I'd say, Jasmine, come out now. I can see you behind the curtain. Just as God called Adam and Eve out of hiding in the garden. But let me ask you this. Do you know this? One day... God will call every human being out of the place where they are hiding from him. He'll call them out by name. And they'll stand before him face to face. Game over. That's the end. What do you think that would be like for you? It doesn't go well for Adam and Eve as the bad thing goes from bad to worse. Verse 9 to 13. Then the Lord God called to the man, where are you? And he replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. Who told you you were naked? The Lord God asked. Have you eaten from the tree 
of whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? And the man replied, it was the woman you gave me. She gave me the fruit and I ate it. (laughs) Then the Lord God asked the woman, what have you done? The serpent deceived me, she replied. That's why I ate it. God calls Adam to account first, not because he's more important than his wife, but because he's accountable for them both before God. And Adam's been caught red-handed. The the evidence of his sin is obvious. So he confesses, I heard you come in and I was afraid because I was naked. What's the difference between his nakedness before he ate the fruit and his nakedness after he ate the fruit? The difference is sin. When Adam sinned against God, suddenly he felt he had something he needed to cover up. He felt his nakedness exposed his sin to God. It exposed his guilt and shame. And so he sewed together those leaves to try and cover it, to hide it. And then he hid in a bush to cover it some more. We can often feel that way, can't we, when we sin? We can try to cover it up. We can withdraw from God and from others. We can try and separate ourselves out in the hope that our sin won't be seen or known. But that's not how God calls us to deal with sin. God calls us to confess our sin to confront it and to repent and to turn away from it. And the Bible says, if you confess your sin, God is just to forgive your sin. That's the hope that we have. So God asks Adam what sounds like the first rhetorical question in human history. Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I told you not to eat from? God knows the answer. Of course he does. He doesn't need Adam to tell him, so why ask? Because he's a loving father, right? And like any loving father, when your child has been doing something wrong, you give them an opportunity to own their actions, don't you? To take responsibility. It's a growth moment. It's a learning moment. Men in this church, listen carefully to this. Because although this principle applies broadly to everyone. In this context, it's about Adam taking responsibility for how he's led his family. And he has not done a good job. He was right there when Eve was being tempted, and yet he said, and he did nothing. It was his responsibility to safeguard her, to ensure that the false teaching of the snake was condemned and refuted. Not because he was better than her or more intelligent or more gifted, but because God has given him that responsibility. He should have lovingly shepherded his wife by speaking the truth of God's word into those circumstances and saying, I hear what you're saying. This thing's not good. Let's look at God's word together again. Let's see what God says about this thing. Can't you see it says, no, this is wrong. That's what he should have done. He should have driven the serpent away. Get out of our lives, Satan. We will have nothing to do with you. But he didn't. He failed that test. The test of the tree. But even then, God gives him an uh, an opportunity to grow by accepting his failings and taking responsibility for his actions. And instead, what does he do? He shifts the blame onto his wife. This is the biblical picture of a weak and spineless man who shirks his God-given responsibility and instead blames the one who's looking to him for that godly relationship. If you're a husband here this morning and if you're a father, then you have a God-given responsibility to lead and shepherd your family well. 
Brothers, let us not be like Adam and shirk our calling. Instead, let us be like Jesus Christ, who laid down his very life for his bride, the church. Let's be those kinds of husbands. Let's be those kinds of fathers. The next thing Adam does is he moves from blaming the woman directly to blaming God indirectly. His excuse is logical from his perspective. If it's true that it's Eve's fault that Adam sinned, then surely it must really be God's fault ultimately because he created Eve and gave her to be his wife. It's the woman you gave me, he says. Eve's excuse implies a similar thing. She blames the snake for deceiving her, but in doing so, she's kind of pushing the blame onto God. You know, God, you let the snake into the garden. It's really your fault. Not only are Adam and Eve both desperate to shift that blame from themselves, but they both ultimately see God as the one at fault. So whose fault is it? Is it Eve's? Was it Adam's? Yes and yes. They both knew God had said what God had said, and they both willfully and willingly chose to ignore God's instruction. Genesis chapter 1 and 2 tell us that God created the heavens and the earth in six days. And he called those days good, 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 very good. And he also said that it was not good for the man to be alone. My point is God is the one who has the power and the authority to not only discern what is good, but to decide and declare it over us. God made human beings to be moral, thinking, uh, reasoning beings, capable of independent thought and action. But when we sin, we're thrusting aside the boundaries that God has laid down for our good. And we're choosing to trust in our ability to decide what's good for us. This is an abuse of God's freedom, right? And it's an abuse that scripture tells us that we are accountable for. It's our fault that we do that. But what about the serpent? Is it to blame? Again, yes. It's clear from the words that the snake is something more than just a normal animal. By its words, it reveals itself as the adversary of God. It's Satan himself who's at work in and through the snakes, sowing doubt and temptation into the lives of God's children. And that means Satan's plan from the beginning, from the very beginning, has been to try to divide and conquer men and women and our relationship to God. When describing Satan, Jesus says this of him. He was a murderer from the beginning. Do you see that? God charges Satan with murder because of his actions in the garden. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. By calling him the father of lies, Jesus lays the origin of evil squarely at the feet of Satan. This is where it starts. This is where it comes from. He's the originator of evil because it flows out of his very character. It's who he is. So the willful choice of human beings and the evil temptation of the snake are all at work plunging Satan into this abyss, uh, plunging us into this abyss of sin. But is there any weight 
in the accusation that it's all God's fault, really. I think we've probably all asked that question in our lives. Why is there evil in the world? Why has an evil thing happened to me, to my friend? We might even ask this question in days to come. After all, if God is all-powerful, all-knowing and all-present, how did this evil happen in the first place? It's a legitimate question. Surely God in his sovereignty could have stopped it from ever taking place. The truth is that God's word, the Bible, affirms that God did allow it. He allowed Satan and his demons to rebel against him. He allowed Satan to enter the garden and tempt mankind. And he allowed humanity to willfully and willingly choose to make themselves slaves to sin. In fact, since nothing is outside the bounds of God's sovereign control and direction, and nothing happens that happens unless God wills it, not only does God allow it, but he uses it. The Bible says that. So then it is God's fault, isn't it? Well, actually, no. I want you to imagine a bow, the sort of bow that Robin Hood would carry, okay? Now, the wooden part of that bow is actually pretty useless on its own. But if you stretch a string between the two points, okay, they will keep that bow under tension. And at that point, it's really good for getting arrows to where they need to go. I want you to imagine at one end of that bow is the truth that God is ultimately sovereignly in control of everything that happens. And at the other end is the truth that he himself is not responsible for the evil that happens. I want you to imagine those two ends of the bow. Now, joining those two ends is faith, which like a bowstring allows us to pull back and release arrows to go forward to where we need to go. And when it comes to the mystery of God, who he is and how he works, Scripture loves to present us with bows. It likes to present us with truths that we hold in tension in order to get where we need to go. It has to do that because there is literally no one and no thing that is exactly like God. Did you know that? He's one of a kind. So big that we can't even understand him. Nothing can accurately describe or categorise his actions or who he is. So we see that God is both three persons and yet one God. We see that God is the creator and is yet himself uncreated. We see that God is spirit and yet he became flesh in Jesus Christ in the incarnation. We see that God is sovereign and yet he gives us free will. We have to hold these things in tension. Because these tensions are where our faith comes alive. They're opportunities to affirm that we don't know everything. And it's fitting that we don't. Like Adam and Eve in the garden trying to grasp that knowledge for themselves. We're to reflect God by imitating his character. Not enviously and covetously trying to replace him. We are not God's. We're not the gods of our own lives. We're not the gods of our own experience and understanding. We're created beings. And it's good that we can look to God and say, you're so much bigger. You're so much greater. I can't understand you. Because that means he's God. And we're not. And that puts us in a right place. 
Only when we can fully recognise these tensions can we truly believe the words that Paul, the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8.28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Can you understand that? If we understand who God is, then we can see a God who can work all things to bless us. How could all things, including evil, work together for the good of God's people unless God himself is directing, limiting and shaping them? The good news for us is that is exactly what he's doing in each one of our lives. And nowhere in scripture is this truth more clearly seen than in the example of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Throughout his life, God set things in motion that would lead to a specific point and place in time for Jesus. You know, Jesus also walked in a garden and he talked in 100% perfect relationship with God, the Father. But on one time, it was different. On this time, God made use of evil men, tempted and spurred by the devil themselves, who willfully and knowingly chose to put together and carry out evil plans to crucify and kill Jesus. That's what the Bible says. And Jesus knew this. But instead of abusing his God-given freedom, he could have walked away. He decided not to. He chose to stay. He chose to willfully and willingly submit to the authority of God the Father. And he allowed himself to be arrested, tried, crucified and killed because he understood that what these men meant for evil God meant for good specifically your good and my good I don't know what evil you've suffered I truly don't I don't know what you've endured in your life but I do know this out of anger out of despair out of frustration out of the injustice and unfairness of it all, we can naturally want to blame God for it. I don't want to condemn you for that because I understand it. But I want to encourage you with something greater. I want to encourage you with something more powerful, more joyful, more hopeful this morning. I want to tell you that the God of the Bible, the God I believe in, is so big and so powerful and so sovereign and so good and so loving that he is able to even take your deepest and most painful suffering and use it to bring about good. I want to tell you that's what the Bible teaches. That's the God that I believe in. That's the God that I've experienced in my life who has taken my suffering and has taken my pain and has brought good in and through it. And that gives me hope. That gives me hope for tomorrow to face more suffering and more pain because that's what human life is. We're going to face that. But I know God is at work. And we can see this principle at work right here in Genesis chapter 3, which at first glance, as I said, is all about the bad thing. It's the damage done to our relationship with one another and with God by our out of order, utterly devastatingly stupid sinfulness. But even here, even in Genesis 3, in the fall, God is at work. 
bringing something so cosmically significantly good out of this that we can't even begin to understand it fully. Let me read Genesis 3, 14 to 23. And I'll tell you this, it's going to sound worse before it gets better. And the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all animals, domestic and wild. You will crawl on your belly, groveling in the dust as long as you live. And I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. And then he said to the woman, I will sharpen the pain of your pregnancy and in pain you will give birth. And your desire will be to control your husband, but he will rule over you. And to the man, he said, since you listened to your wife and ate from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat, the ground is cursed because of you. All your life you'll struggle to scratch a living from it. It will grow thorns and thistles for you, though you will eat of its grains. By the sweat of your brow will you have food to eat until you return to the ground from which you were made. For you were made from dust, and to dust you will return. Then the man Adam named his wife Eve because she would be the mother of all who live. Excuse me. And the Lord God made clothing from animal skins for Adam and his wife. And then the Lord God said, look, the human beings have become like us, knowing both good and evil. What What if they reach out and take from the tree of life and eat it? Then they will live forever. So the Lord God banished them from the Garden of Eden. And he sent Adam out to cultivate the ground from which he had been, been made. Okay, okay. This section of chapter three seems like it's just more bad news. And it's primarily taken up with God's judgment and sentencing over Satan and over humanity. But I want to tell you that despite what it sounds like, nothing could be further from the truth in this section of Genesis. This is the most hopeful and joyful and, I don't know, inspiring section of Genesis that there is. If we look a little bit closer, we can see the fingerprints of God's grace. That's his undeserved favour for us all over it. We can see that God takes the bad thing and brings good from it. So God talking to Satan in verse 15 says this. I'll cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And get this, he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Okay, this is not about people being afraid of snakes. Okay, this is not a a, a curse that endures for eternity. Human beings will be afraid of snakes. That's not where it is. I want you to understand this. This is called the proto-evangelion. Okay, it's just a, a posh word that means the first announcement of the gospel the good news this is the first time in the history of creation that the good news has been preached to human beings this is the first prophetic promise of the coming of jesus in the whole of the bible right here in the darkest moment of human history god fans into flame a glorious light of hope he promises a savior One who will come, and although he'll be injured by the serpent who, remember, is Satan, he will ultimately have victory over him. You crush someone's head, they're down, okay? You kick someone's shin or hurt their ankle, they're going to get up again at some point, okay? That's what this means. Satan will be crushed, dealt with, done. This kind of a picture, it bursts through the sorrow of our sin, 
the curse and judgment, and it joyfully proclaims Jesus' victory over sin, over death, and over Satan. Again in verse 21, and the Lord God made clothing from animal skins for Adam and his wife. I want you to understand this. God has compassion on the man and his wife. He sees their pitiful efforts to cover up their shame, their nakedness. And so for the first time in human history, the blood of an animal is spilled as God takes the initiative. And in his kindness, he provides them clothes of animal skins to cover up that nakedness. This is just another picture pointing forward first to the sacrificial system that God would bring in where an animal was killed, its blood was spilled to help people be forgiven for their sins. That was temporary. It pointed forward even more wonderfully to Jesus, to the glorious and full and ultimate outworking of this picture where Jesus's blood was spilled on the cross So that he could completely and permanently cover and atone for all of our sin. This one act points forward to this ultimate moment that we all walk in day by day. And then finally in verses 22 and 23, we see God banishing Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden. I want you to understand, in this moment, it's not so much about punishment, okay, This is to stop them from eating the fruit of the tree of life and living forever in their sinful state. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine all the evil, disgusting, horrible things that people do to each other, but that going on for eternity? Can you imagine that? All right, that's what God broke in that moment. He cast them out of the garden. He said, you guys are going to die. And the reason for that is so that there can be new life. They would, God limits our ability to sin and he limits the amount of evil in the world. And he opens the possibility of resurrection and new life, free from sin. So we return to the one that this chapter, chapter three, is really all about, Jesus Christ. The saviour who God promised would crush Satan for good. The sinless one who passed the test of the tree where Adam failed by being crucified on it whilst carrying all of our sin and shame in our place. Every evil, hurtful, spiteful, deceitful, damaging and corrosive thing that human beings have ever done or will ever do or think is dealt with right there in Jesus' death. Jesus made a willful, knowing choice to obey God's word, the one who spoke all of creation into being. And as a result, in that very moment, the reality of human existence was changed once more, but forever. All our sin, all our shame, all our nakedness has now been covered by the blood of Jesus. The broken halves of humanity have been made whole again, as God intended. And Satan's plan to divide and conquer is dealt a killing blow. Mankind are restored from enemies to friends, from strangers to family, and death itself now ends in life. As God raises Jesus to new life, and he holds out that hope to each and every one of us this morning. John 3.16 says, and it's my favorite verse in the whole of scripture, for God so loved the world, that means every single one of you, including me, 
that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. This is the glorious good news. This is the gospel. And this is the happy ending that we all long for in our heart of hearts. Just like a rom-com, in Genesis 3, you have to go through the bad thing and the breakup to see and to treasure the good news and the makeup. Brothers and sisters, I want you to know that God has taken the bad thing and turned it into good news for us this morning. If I could have the worship team up. I want us to take a moment to reflect right here, right now. Let's just still ourselves before God for a moment. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Remember 1 John 1.19. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Okay? I got up this morning and I had sin and I had unrighteousness. And when I confess my sin to God, he cleanses me from that sin and from that unrighteousness. Maybe as I've been speaking, you recognize yourself in Adam and Eve this morning. Maybe you feel ashamed or guilty because of some sin. Maybe you're particularly struggling in sin and you want to see breakthrough and it's not happening. Maybe you know that you always try to blame someone else or anyone else for the things that you do wrong. If that's you... In this moment, then I want you to privately, just with your head down and your eyes closed, just confess that to God. You, this is what that means. That means, I'm sorry, God, I know that I always do this. Or, I'm sorry, God, I know I have done this. God knows it anyway. But this is a moment to take accountability. To say, I know I've messed up. It is on me. And I'm sorry. And then as you do that, you repent. And that means you turn away and you walk the other way. So you don't do that thing anymore. I want to pray if you're struggling with that, I'm going to pray now. Heavenly Father, for my brothers and sisters who are struggling in an area where they can't see breakthrough and they keep getting it wrong, I want to pray your hand, your mighty, sovereign, powerful hand to bring breakthrough into those situations right here, right now. God, I pray that they would see victory in their lives over the sins that they are working through and trying to deal with. God, you have covered it in your blood. Jesus, you died to make us righteous. And so I pray, come in power, equip them through the presence and the working of your Holy Spirit that they might see victory over sin in their lives. We pray that in your powerful, glorious name. Amen. I want to say this, maybe <clears throat> something's happened in your life and you have encountered a situation where, like me, you've walked out before the end of the movie because I was so devastated at the bad thing. Maybe you've walked out on God because you just can't see the way forward and you can't see hope. I want you to know that God is able to even bring your suffering and bring good from it. I want you to know that ultimately in him... Every wrong will be righted. Every tear will be wiped away. And in Jesus, there is sure and certain hope of an eternity of joy and happiness. So I want you, if you feel prompted and you want to respond to that, why don't you just cry out to God and just come back to him today? That's all you have to do. 
The prodigal son who went away from God and did his own thing, or went away from his father and did his own thing, was welcomed back with open arms. No questions asked. That's what God's offering you this morning. And maybe you're not in a relationship with God at all. Maybe you're hiding from him and pretending like he's not there and he can't see you. I want to say this. If you've heard him calling your name this morning, this is your opportunity to respond, to step forward. So Mark, the lovely Christmas Star Wars jumper, and myself, we're going to be around. Why don't you come and find us if you'd like to particularly respond to any one of those things. Be blessed. Thanks for listening, guys. I love you all. The worship team's going to lead us now.